the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, hi, everybody, and thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill. It's always good to be with you each week. Special thanks to the Salem Media Network for distributing the show, and of course, thank you for listening and sharing the program. This week, we welcome to the microphone Dr. Del Tackett. Dr. Tackett is a former colleague of mine at Focus on the Family, where he served as an executive vice president, and you probably know him from his landmark work, The Truth Project. The Truth Project is an outstanding small group Christian worldview course that Dell created that's been seen by nearly 20 million people now in something like 130 countries. It's even been translated into a number of different languages. His latest endeavor is called The Engagement Project, and he's also hosted a fascinating documentary series, Is Genesis History? Dr. Tackett served in the Air Force for 20 years, worked in the White House for President George H.W. Bush, and has been dedicated and committed now for decades to teaching God's people fundamental and foundational truths. But what so many of us love about Dr. Tackett is that he isn't just serving up intellectual fodder for people who like to live in ivory towers. He takes profound truths and puts it in shirt sleeve English that is practical and actionable. So, Dr. Tackett, it is great to have you here. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate being here. It's good to be with you again. Well, thank you. Um, you've often been described as a tour guide. <laughs> Where did that come from, and how, do you accept that moniker? Well, actually, I accept it because I think I'm the one that has insisted on it, uh, and that is because I don't, I don't see myself as anyone other than just a tour guide. My, my job is to point people, uh, hopefully, ultimately, to the nature and character of God. That is the, that's the ultimate tour any of us can take. And so I just feel like that's what I am. You know, I'm trying to help people see uh, what I think are amazing things, just like a tour guide would. Mm. You know, he's pointing out things <laughs> along the way. And so that's how I see myself. Yeah. And you've also drawn the distinction between, you, you'll say, I'm not a speaker, I'm a teacher. So what's the difference yeah. between those two? Well, uh, and I want to be careful here because, you know, some people are called speakers and they're wonderful people and they do a wonderful job. But from my perspective, and this is how I, I see it, is that I want people to recognize that my job is not to entertain them. I'm not here for them to have uh, just a wonderful entertainment moment. <laughs> uh, my job is to do what we, we said before, and that's to say you need to look at the face of God. You need to understand who he is, uh, because when we understand who he is, then we can better understand who we are and our relationship to him. Those are the foundational things mm -hmm. Uh, that people need in their lives. So I'm not interested in entertaining. 
I'm interested in seeing people change. Yeah, I, when, I, when I see or when I remember um, uh, NBC's Tim Russert uh, and now Carl Rove, they love the whiteboard. And they're always, that's you. <laughs> yeah. you. You seem most comfortable up in front of a classroom and working your board. It is true that I often uh, times feel uncomfortable if I'm just put in front of uh, of an audience with a, a podium and a mic, uh, a, a fixed mic where I can't move around <laughs> and yeah. I can't actually jump down and, and uh, walk uh, in front of people and ask them questions. That's what I'm comfortable with. Uh, and especially uh, not having a whiteboard or something to draw on. Um, I, I've, I've learned this, Paul, and that is that when you start to draw on a board, people's attention are just all of a sudden drawn and fixed upon that. So, so I guess it's the visual part of learning that is important as well. Yeah, you know what I miss is the sound of chalk on a board. I, <laughs> I grew up with that, like yeah. you did too. And did. for some reason, you know, the whiteboard has the squeak, but the chalk has the click, and, the, and for some reason, that's a very yeah. um, comforting sound to me. But this is this show is called What a Life, and so we're mm-hmm. talking. Uh, we talk with people who have lived extraordinary lives, and and I put you in that category. You, uh, of course, we met many years ago now, but what I, I thought people who know you and have followed you through the Truth Project and the Genesis and now the Engagement Project, they may not know a lot about you personally. At least that all the all the. Uh, life that led you to create what you created. So let's start at the beginning. You you were born in Texas, but your family moved to Idaho. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So I, I don't have any memories of, of Texas, but yes, I was, I was born in an oil town in northern Texas. Uh, and then my dad moved uh, to southeastern Idaho. And that's where uh, he began working as essentially a, a nuclear engineer at um, at uh, one of the first real research projects that we had in this in this country, so we were in a little town called Blackfoot. Except we weren't in a town; we were we were in a little on a little farm uh, out in a rural community, and that's where I grew up. Uh, I was there for um, most of my uh, early life up until the my junior year in high school. You mentioned you don't remember Texas, but what is your earliest memory then in Idaho? Well, the earliest memories I have in Idaho are uh, are concerning just uh, being on the farm uh, with animals, uh, horses in particular. Uh, if if I were to try and understand the very first thing I remember, it's probably being put on a horse. <laughs> so, and that's a delightful memory for me because I love I love horses. Um, but yeah, there are memories there on the farm in Idaho. Yeah, we were just reading this morning. There's a, a new study out that talks about people who come from rural communities enjoy a more upwardly mobile life that the, the the necessity to fend for yourself to create mm-hmm. uh with and deal with the elements as a lot and i wonder do you ever attribute some of your resilience to that early upbringing well i think there's a lot of truth to that i have long said that uh, you cannot grow up on a ranch or a farm without developing common sense um, because you have to have common sense. You know, if you don't uh, break the ice and the water trough in the winter, then the horses will die of thirst. Mm. Uh, you know, if you don't feed uh, the animals, they'll die. If all of these things, there is a, the farm and ranch are filled with all 
kinds of things that demand someone uh, to not only have common sense, but uh, have a proper work ethic, uh, to realize it's not about you. Um, there are a lot of things there, I think, that lend themselves to what you just said. I had not really heard that before, but I can understand that completely. Um, yeah. Because if you, have, if you have a good, strong work ethic and, and you have a good common sense, and in general, we didn't mention this yet, but I, I think uh, a kindness and a care uh, for other people, I think part of that is uh, you grow up on a ranch and a farm, you realize that you have to rely on each other as neighbors and so forth. And so if you grow up with those things, then you've probably got a good set of tools uh, that are going to fare you well in your life. The voice you hear is Dr. Del Tackett. He's the creator of The Truth Project, among other things. Uh, The Engagement Project is his latest endeavor. I'm Paul Batura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Um, Dr. Tackett, you um, you know, our parents play such a pivotal Mm. role in our lives. What was your relationship with like your with your mom and dad? Well, we had a good uh, family relationship. Uh, we we were close. Um, I think we suffered from the same kinds of squabbles, you know, that siblings uh, normally have. Um, my dad and I were extremely close. Uh, so uh, my memories of growing up are focused primarily on uh, going uh, hunting and fishing with my dad. Or working on the farm with him, uh, in in some way, um, but it was the, it was my dad's character, I think, more than anything that has has been formational for me, and so that's I look back and I think about how, in particular, my dad had um, he had a real care for the outcast, and that was because he grew up <clears throat> that way. Hmm. So he, uh, his dad died when he was a baby, never knew his dad. And then uh, his mom remarried, and then she died when he was uh, a young boy. Um, and, then, and then his stepdad remarried, and, and, then, and then he died. And so anyway, at some point, there was, you know, the, this, these two people are looking around saying, who's this kid? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And he basically just got farmed out. As a hired hand places, and so he really grew up more uh, more of an orphan and on his own. Uh, so he knew what it was like to be an outcast, and that was that lesson, uh, and and it formed in many different ways that my dad taught me uh, was that you know you have to have a heart for the outcast, and of course now I look back on that and I think, well, my goodness, that's you know, that is the grace of God, you know, that God himself uh, has a heart for the outcast. If he did not, I, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, you're driven. I mean, the, all the work that you do is is sort of motivated by a desire to help people and to help people understand what their life is all about. It is. Uh, and I guess to a great extent, I would attribute it back uh, to my dad. And, of course, the Lord working through all of that and the Lord himself and the nature of God. Um, but yeah, it's it uh, the life lessons I taught from the, I learned from my dad as he taught me were very very important. I was surprised. Not maybe I wasn't surprised, but I, I was delighted to see you and I have something in common. Uh, when I was in high school, I was invited to go to Boys State. Uh, oh, yes. I, I was in New York. You were mm-hmm. obviously in Idaho, but that seems that had a fairly formative influence on you. 
It really did. Um, I grew up, it was a very interesting, we were kind of an outcast in our community uh, because um, we were different uh, from the primary religion that was in that area. And what was that? You were a Methodist and a Mormon? Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, we were an outcast to, uh, to that extent. And uh, so when I got to high school, and uh, this happens in your junior year when you are, when you are then considered uh, to go to Boy State, as you recall, um, and the fact that I was selected to go to Boys State, uh, and the only reason that happened was because there was a, there was a man uh, that was uh, head of the American Legion at that time. There was an American Legion a program uh, who advocated for me, even though um, I was kind of the outcast and really shouldn't go. He did. And so, yes, I went to, I went to Boys State, and it was just an amazing moment and time for me because it gave me the opportunity to kind of step out of that, um, I guess you would say, those bindings that were back home. And then from there, I was selected to go to Boys Nation. And so that was a those were two major, major events in my life, yes. You, you beat me on that. I was not, I was not afforded <laughs> such an honor, so that, that's great. And so that put you in Washington, D.C. I mean, little yes. did you know that you'd be back working in the White House. I mean, if, could you ever imagine that? No, I could not have ever imagined that. I mean, some you know, farm kid from Idaho, just the fact that I had been able to go to Boise and to be in the capital of Boise and then to find myself you know, in the capital, Washington, D.C., I mean, that was just, that was, that was a dream that was happening. And, of course, I thought it would be the only time I'd ever be there. Yeah, and you decided to go to Kansas State University. Is that right? I did. I started, uh, I started in a, a junior college in, in Kansas City, and that was primarily because of things that were happening with my family at the time. Uh, but I went two years at a very, very large junior college in Kansas City. Uh, and then uh, after that, then went to, to Kansas State University. Now, a lot of people, when they see you and they think you have it all together, I mean, you obviously have done very well in your life, but, you know, you, you grew up in some challenging circumstances. Your mom and dad divorced at some point. Yes. Your mom had mental illness. How, yes. did, that, how did that affect your life? Yeah, when I look back, um, of course, my whole life is one of um, ups and downs. Uh, and in fact, I, I, I used to tell my students, I'd graph my life on a, on a blackboard, on the whiteboard. Uh, and we'd talk about, you know, okay, this is a low point in my life, and then this is a high point, followed by this deep low point, followed by this high point. And basically, I would say, you know, you look at that graph and realize you, you can't plan your life. And uh, so you, you need to stop worrying about it because a lot of college students are worried about the future and what they're going to do and so forth. And, uh, and I tell them, you know, if you're worried about your life, then it's probably because uh, God has painted over the windshield so you can't see out the front and you're driving the car. And you should be worried, you know, if you're driving the yeah. car and you can't see out the windshield. But if you slide over and let him drive, then the Christian life becomes an adventure. And now I didn't learn that early uh, because, yes, my life was a lot of uh, severe ups and a lot of severe downs. And one of those was when my folks divorced uh, when I was uh, just out of high school. And 
we were living in Puerto Rico. My family was living in Puerto Rico at that time. And so uh, I then was left uh, taking care of my mom in Kansas City, uh, getting an apartment for her. And uh, she was suffering from a lot of uh, psychological uh, trauma and illness. And that that, uh, then became some physical problems and so forth. So, yeah, that was a very uh, difficult time. I did what I think I was supposed to. I probably didn't do it as well as I should. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was what I would call kind of a very dark time. Yeah. Life. So you you would say that you didn't have some grand plan for your life. Oh no. Uh, I mean, I had oh I had grand plans, but uh, those grand plans are nothing <laughs> compared to what God has done uh, in in my life. What did you? What was your? If you could have written your ticket back at that era of your life, what would you have done? Oh, well, when I was in high school, and it was, it was primarily because of what happened at Boys State and Boys Nation, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be a lawyer and end up in politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, there was no doubt on my mind. So I was going to go to law school. Uh, and then uh, my parents got divorced, and I was taking care of my mom. Uh, I had to go to uh, junior college then. And so I, everything changed as a result of that. So, yeah, don't be surprised, you know, if God steps in and says, no, that's not the, <laughs> the plan I yeah, have for you. Yeah, it's always that line about if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plan. Yeah, right? that's true. Yeah. I'm Paul Batura. We're talking with Dr. Del Tackett, creator of the Truth Project and the uh, Engagement Project. Um, Dr. Tackett, you studied computer science. I did. Which seems like maybe a, an unusual path for someone who turns into one of the nation's leading apologists. <laughs> well, uh, to tell you the truth, I, I just did what I thought was easy at the time. Uh, computer science is easy. Well, uh, for me, uh, at the time when I was uh, going through the family issues and problems and so forth uh, and and. Yes, I wanted to go to law school and all of those things. But for me, math was easy. I mean, it was like I could do math in my sleep. And so I started out with electrical engineering because that, that's what my dad did. <clears throat> so I just I chose uh, the, you know, the degree path um, that ha- had the easiest, easiest pathway. And then when I got to K-State, uh, Kansas State was one of the leading institutions at that time in computer science. Uh, and the more I learned about it, the more I understood uh, where all this was going, the more I said, okay, that's, that's what I'll do. And so, yeah, I got into computer science. It was a very tough curriculum, a very tough curriculum. But um, I, I enjoyed it. And, and so, yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. Hmm. And then you, the Vietnam War is raging, and you decide yes. to go Air Force ROTC. What was your thought on that? <laughs> well... It really wasn't. It's if you put it in those terms, I decided to. The reality was God decided. Uh, so, <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize. For a long time, the draft system in our country was simply based upon uh, people, young men, uh, when they turned sixteen, had to register for the draft, and then there was a draft board, and the draft board was the one that selected people, and it was fraught with all kinds of. Uh, good boy things and all that stuff and so forth. And so in the middle of the Vietnam War, they decided to go to what was called a lottery system. Uh, the lottery system was uh, going to be fair. And so they had 365, you know, like bingo <laughs> balls that were placed in a hopper. And they had a birthday. 
uh, you know, January Mm -hmm. 1st through December 31st. And so they were going to start picking and they were going to number these from one down to 365, depending on how they were picked. And then if, you know, if we needed 100,000 men, they would start with number one and they would go down. And if your birthday fell in those numbers, then you were gone. And when they got down to where they had everybody they needed, everybody else was free Hmm. and safe and you didn't have to worry about it again. So they started that draft lottery system. And I remember we were, you know, my college buddies, we were sitting in our, we rented a house at uh, Manhattan, Kansas, and we were watching that lottery system. And the very first ball they pulled out of that hopper was my birthday. And so, so one lottery you don't want to win. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. My mom sent me a telegram the next day that said, "Congratulations, son! You've just won the lottery uh, for uniforms and meals." I didn't think it was funny. Um, and so the next day, I I guess I decided. The next day, I went down to the Air Force uh, ROTC commander and basically said, "Sir, I, I'm going to fly for United States Air Force." So you want to fly, and this is probably something you've never done before. No, and, <laughs> never uh, flown before in my life. So how did that go? How did the training begin? Well, the training occurred. Uh, I had to go through enter into ROTC at the university, and after after two years, I uh, finished my degree and then did a year of artificial intelligence, graduate work in artificial intelligence, and then immediately went to uh, Reese Air Force Base for pilot training. You must have some strong opinions about AI now. I mean, well, I do. Years yeah. ago, you, you actually were studying that, and now here we are. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was really the very beginnings of AI uh, back then, but it, uh, it had a very robust uh, foundation, and that's what we were studying in graduate yeah. graduate work there at K State. Uh, but then, uh, immediately went st- straight to pilot training uh, in Texas, and. Um, yeah, was there until then I uh, had an injury and uh, went through all kinds of, of things to try and get through all of that, surgery and so forth, and then ended up uh, being grounded. But, uh, yeah, that's how I, I entered into the Air Force. How disappointed were you when you were disqualified from flying? Right. That's probably another one of those deep, deep valleys in my life uh, because uh, at that point I, it, it's very easy to – uh, I, I would use the word get addicted to flying. That's maybe not the right word. Um, obsessed is not a right word either. But if you talk to people who fly, who really love flying, especially people who are flying uh, jet aircraft, fighter aircraft, uh, it can really get into your blood. Hmm. Uh, and not only just the flying part, but the whole aspect of being a, a pilot in the United States Air Force. And in particular, to know there's a war going on. And and you're needed. And then all of a sudden, for a flight surgeon at the end of a lot of appeals and so forth, to finally say, no, you're not qualified to fly. Uh, that was that was one of the very deep pits in my life. Um, hmm. So I mean, these, these fence posts throughout your life, whether it was, you know, a parent getting divorced or a move or, a, uh, you know, and obviously a, a huge disappointment with with, mm-hmm. with uh, flying. Um, they all led to something else and, and clearly leading to something that God intended uh, to help you get to where you are today. You got uh, couldn't fly, so then you were doing some chaplaincy work for the Air Force. Is that right? Well, that, that's amazing that you know that. Uh, I did. Um, 
they put me on what was called casual status. That's uh, that's a word the military uses. It says we have no idea what to do with you right now. Uh, and that was because we were waiting on all, all kinds of uh, medical options uh, and, and boards and everything to try and get back into the cockpit. And so I was put on casual status. Well, when the, when the Air Force didn't know what to do with you, uh, at this point they said, well, you know, why don't you go help the chaplain? <laughs> and so I did. Uh, and it was a remarkable time, a remarkable time for me. Huh. And so uh, you didn't actually become a chaplain, but you were working with him. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Del Tackett. Uh, he is the creator of The Truth Project. Um, my name is Paul Batura, and this you're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Dr. Tackett, when we come back, I'd love to talk with you about uh, your career. I mean, you had 20 years in the Air Force, mm-hmm. and then including in that was time right inside Cheyenne Mountain. Right That's here right. in Colorado Springs, right. and then, in, of course, inside uh, the White House in Washington, D.C., yes. which must have been just a remarkable uh, experience for you. That it was. So when, and so when we come back, we're going to talk about that, and then uh, I'd love to talk to you about the Engagement Project, which sure. is your ongoing. And then the ongoing, uh, you have just such a, you have your finger on the pulse of the culture mm. and what is happening, and love to ask you some different things about that about uh, different current events and get your take on that sure. so thanks for listening when we come back again more from Dr. Del Tackett creator of the Truth Project I'm Paul Batura. thanks for listening welcome back I'm Paul Batura. you're listening to What a Life Lessons from Legends I'm talking with the legendary Dr. Del Tackett creator of the Truth Project the Engagement Project is Genesis History a documentary series Dr. Tackett, in the first half of the program, we talked about your entrance into the Air Force. Um, 20 years, how many moves in that uh, career? Uh, I don't really know. We didn't move nearly as much as a lot of people did, but we, we hopped here and there. So you're inside at one of those moves. You find yourself inside Cheyenne Mountain. Yes. NORAD. Right. Uh, that is sort of a legendary place. Uh, it's been in movies. It's been depicted in, in a variety of entertainment ways. Uh, I got to tour it years ago with mm. a friend. Uh, amazing, multiple buildings on springs. What was your first reaction when you got assigned to that? Well, I think I was excited about it. Uh, I don't know how you could not be excited about uh, being assigned to to Cheyenne Mountain. I was the deputy commander of the 47th there, and so we basically were charged uh, with the operations that was going on there and, and everything, and including all the computer systems. The computer systems were really the heart of that whole system because um, the mission of Cheyenne Mountain was to be the eyes and ears of, of North American um, defense systems. So we were the ones to be able to tell the president uh, there was a red phone right there to call the president in case, you know, there was a, a surprise attack. They maybe come over the polar region uh, from the Soviet Union or attack from submarine launches and and so forth. So there was data that was coming from everywhere, from satellites, from ground stations, everything all came together there in those computer systems. So the computer systems are pretty pretty important. And anytime there was a glitch or a hiccup, then my, uh, we had sat phones back then, uh, didn't have cell phones, but 
uh, I think I almost had to shower with that sat phone, and then mm-hmm. I had to, it had to sit right next to the shower. Yeah. Uh, so it was really a twenty four seven operation. It was exciting. Uh, being inside the mountain, as you recall, if you went there on a tour, is really a fascinating place. Um, you know, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I'd be working in there. And uh, uh, so, as you may know, there's a lake in there that holds fuel oil. So you can get in a rowboat and go go across the fuel oil lake, uh, which is there to uh, provide the fuel for the huge, huge diesel engines that were backup power. So. Uh, the, the Cheyenne Mountain was built to be able to be buttoned up in, in terms of being able to survive a nuclear attack. And so we had to have all of the, all the things that were necessary to provide uh, the people who were part of that mission uh, to survive uh, not only the attack, but post-attack. Uh, you know, most of us, um, most of the days in there, I'm sure, are very mundane. Uh, you know, there's a lot of anticipation. And, but I, were, were there any super high stress days where you thought maybe something was going to happen, but it didn't? Well, uh, I, I don't know if I can really point any one of those out. Every time we had some sort of an outage, anytime there was some failure of, of equipment or so forth, uh, we knew that, um, you know, the eyes and ears uh, for North America were either down or to some extent, they were um, they were less than what they should be. Yeah, and so th- there weren't many days in which there weren't some sort of crisis uh, like that. Uh, but but I would say primarily, um, you know, when when we had we had a war, as you recall, in Iraq uh, when Saddam Hussein um, made his his an attack north. Uh, that we then provided um, the capability for the troops in the field to recognize when a Scud missile was launched and where it was launched from. And uh, so that was, uh, that was an operational time where, you know, basically was, it was a 24-7 operation that, yeah. was, that was pretty, pretty uh, exciting uh, in, you know, in the way that that kind of thing can become exciting. It was difficult. But. Now, you're the creator of the Truth Project, so I expect you to tell the truth on this one. But <laughs> what do you make of all the UFO stories that are coming out now? Well, I'll give you my opinion. And my opinion is this, that um, I have held uh, what you could say is the highest security level that an individual can hold. And... Um, and I also know that it is virtually impossible for the government and government people to keep secrets. Um, all of this is based upon a conspiracy theory that the government is holding secrets back. And, um, and my opinion is that that's virtually impossible. Ah, yeah. I've off, my theory has been that, that they're, all, they're pretty much all military operations and that the government almost has a vested interest in playing along because it takes the focus away from what is probably top secret operations that they don't want to talk about and instead putting the focus on silly conspiratorialists who wear the tinfoil hats and think little green men are, you know, in Area 51 mm-hmm. or something. That's my theory. But yeah, I, th- I, I think that's not a bad theory, uh, Paul, um, because there are a lot of, uh, a lot of test programs and um, 
uh, we would call black operations and things where we're testing new equipment, building new equipment. And uh, it's very difficult to test those and run those without, you know, people seeing something. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, I don't think your theory is that far off. Um, but I, but again, I can guarantee you that you, you look back at any of the, of the things that have happened. If you want to look at the Nixon administration, it doesn't matter what you, whatever. Um, you, the government cannot keep a secret. It just can't. Uh, people can't keep a secret. And uh, I mean, can you imagine uh, if? You know, if we really had UFOs that have landed and we had green men and so forth, yeah. can you imagine the money somebody could make who really knew that and had evidence of that? Anyway, so I, I'll i take your third. <laughs> this is Dr. Del Tackett. He's <laughs> the uh, creator of the Truth Project. So what you just heard has to be the truth. We trust Dr. Tackett. Um, <laughs> getting back to more serious matters, what is it like inside the Situation Room at the White House? You've been in there, I presume. I have. And, of course, when I was there, uh, that was uh, pretty much a deep, dark secret. It was originally called the Situation Room. Uh, I mean, I mean the Crisis Room, the Crisis Center. But um, I guess we don't have crises anymore. We have situations. So uh, it was changed to the Situation Room, but it was, it was pretty much a kind of a top-secret operation that went on in there. Um, and then, of course— when uh, Osama bin Laden was taken down, you know, if you recall, we had front page uh, pictures of of people sitting there in the in the Situation Room and so forth, and even named the the Navy uh, SEAL teams and so forth. All, all of that was just so radically different than what um, what things were like when I was it's, there. It's in the basement of the White House, is that right? It's underground. Well, the Situation Room is um, is basically in the West Wing of the White House, and uh, and this location is uh, we would say secure. Can't really talk about it. Well, uh, I don't know what to talk about anymore, Paul. What I don't know what's what's uh, available in the, in the public square for all of this and so forth. But uh, it's a place where the president uh, can go and he can have direct conversations with. Other heads of state, for example, and all that technology is available to him to do that. It's a place where he can gather uh, cabinet members or whoever he thinks is important uh, for a meeting where they connect with with other people uh, and and so forth. So it's a um, you, you know it, it, the term is good. It's a situation room yeah. uh, that's uh, built there for the commander in chief. Now, you've talked about your time in Washington, D.C. as being, again, very formative, not just in your military career, but in what the Lord did in yes. your heart. Because right. you were there in the middle of uh, you know, American history. What was the Lord telling you during those right. year or years you were in D.C.? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, first of all, I, you know, the fact that I was in the White House always seemed weird to me because I always thought somebody had made a mistake. You know, because I, I hadn't lobbied for it, <clears throat> and it was just like a lot of things in my life where the God grabs me by the scruff of the neck, and the next thing I know, I'm flying to the air and I land in the White House. And I said, "How in the world did I get here?" And and it was an amazing job. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it was it was an incredible job, and every day I kind of pinched myself. 
But what the Lord had me there was not just that. The Lord had me there for me to see uh, what I can see, the best I can, the state of our nation. And I was the one of my prime jobs, I was a liaison for the president uh, to all the federal agencies in a particular area. And so I had contact with a lot of the federal agencies and had the ability to and, and the privilege as a result of that to kind of see what was going on in all of the, all of the agencies. And it was in the midst of all of that that the Lord broke my heart for the state of our nation. Um, and the reason for that, Paul, was because he had begun um, to give me a deep hunger to read all of the founding generation's writing as much as I could. And, and that started as a result of hearing Washington's farewell address. There was a reenactment, and I, I went there, I heard that, and the things that Washington said seemed so strange to me that I wanted to read it myself. I did. Uh, my office is just down the hall from the White House Library, and so I went down, I pulled it out and read it for myself, mm-hmm. and, and, and certainly that's what George Washington had really said. Well, that then made me begin to uh, think and suspect that I hadn't heard the truth about the founding of this nation. So I wanted to begin to, and I started to read. I, I couldn't I couldn't satisfy that. What was it in particular in, in his farewell address that grabbed you? I mean, it was probably the totality of it, but right. was there anything in particular? that? Well, the one thing that stands out to me, and it was the entire message and address, <clears throat> but the one thing was when Washington talked about the foundations of religion and morality that everything they had done was resting upon those two foundations. I thought that if someone would say, well, what did the founders rest everything on? Well, I'd say, well, it was freedom, liberty, and, and those things. It wasn't. And the more I began to read, I began to, to find John. It didn't matter who I read. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, the, uh, you know, Webster, all of them, they all referred to these foundations the foundation of religion, which was Christianity, and and morality, the moral ethics that came from that foundation. Everything they did was based upon those. And you know, that's why it was John Adams that said, you know, if the public mind becomes vitiated and corrupt, then laws are a nullity and constitutions are waste paper. And he said that. Why? Because of these foundations. He said, you know, if we move away from these foundations, then it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. And, uh, of course, we can look around today and mm. begin to realize how, how wise a lot of these people were. So as I began to read all of that, I, I increasingly not only began to understand more what they were doing and a deep increased, um, you know, just admiration uh, for the wisdom in that founding generation. But also, along with that, was then the accompanying realization of how far we had fallen from that. Mm. And so it was in that that God broke my heart for the state of our nation. But very shortly after that, he broke my heart for the state of the body of Christ, because I realized that our nation just simply reflected the state of the body of Christ. And that is what absolutely changed my whole life. And I then 
was launched in a direction where I felt God wanted me to do whatever I could, my small part, to get the body of Christ healthy. Yeah, this is Dr. Del Tackett, creator of the Truth Project and the Engagement Project. So, Dr. Tackett, you, you retire from the Air Force. You have a little pension, you have, but you have this burning conviction, and there are a lot of people in your shoes who could go and get a very high-paying high government contract job doing a lot of what you were probably doing. But you decide to start a fledgling university. <laughs> That could not have been financially sound, but it's what the Lord told you to do. Yeah, when I left uh, the White House, and it was a stark departure, I mean, because I knew I couldn't stay there anymore, uh, it was one of those things where I couldn't sleep at night. Uh, This was, the Lord, I guess we put it this way, the Lord's hand was so heavy upon me uh, that I realized I, I had to begin to do what I could to get the body of Christ healthy. I need to speak out and so forth. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. I really had no clue, Paul. I had no idea. I just knew I had to do something. And so we returned here to Colorado Springs. And I began to work for a defense contractor uh, because my family had gotten used to eating and having heat, you know, in the winter. And and then uh, there were several people that, around me, friends that had uh, become convinced that God wanted a new seminary to be started. And so I thought, okay, that's, that's the answer here. We'll start a seminary that will, be, that will train up people who are uh, biblically worldview-centric in their thinking and in their teaching and so forth. So yes, we, <laughs> we started that little seminary. And um, and that's where I began to develop all of the worldview uh, courses and material uh, that eventually went into the Truth Project. But it didn't, I mean, it went well enough, but not necessarily as well as you maybe could have prayed it would at that moment. And things kind of, money starts to kind of run out, I suppose, in terms of running the seminary. And then you get a phone call from a mutual colleague, an eventual mutual colleague of ours, Charlie Jarvis. What was that? What happened then? If you anybody knows Charlie, it, it's interesting uh, that Charlie said, "Delt, God has called you to take my place at Focus on the Family as Executive Vice President." And I said, "Charlie, he hasn't. I'm called here. This is my calling from the Lord." So you come to Focus on the Family. You're kind of resigned to the call that God's put on you based on the person calling you. But again, one more thing in your life, right? Where yep. there's a disappointment, and yet. You, you you bury yourself in the work, and then comes another knock at the door from a guy named Ron Wilson. And yes. what, what did Ron say to you? <laughs> so, yeah, Ron was the head of HR at that time. Uh, I was a, I was an executive vice president. And and Ron came, and he was saying, you know, we're, we're starting to get people coming to focus that I don't think have a really good work ethic. And uh, I understand you were teaching something about that at the, at the seminary. Um. How about if you try to help us do this? And I said, well, Ron, I think the issue here is a biblical worldview. That's the issue and the problem. And part of that is a biblical understanding of work and the sphere of labor. So, you know, if we want to do something, then we need to do something right. Now, Ron, you know, wasn't trying to do something wrong. He was just, you know, kind of spurring this response for me. And, of course, Ron said, well, then let's do that. And so... I said, okay, so I, I built a little uh, summary course of all the 
I think, 300 contact hours that I created at the seminary and put it in a little course that we started to teach uh, first the executive team and then uh, and then the you know the rest of the you know the the supervisory leadership across focus and that was really the beginning of the teaching of the truth project yeah i remember attending those early sessions and <laughs> and walking out and talking with fellow colleagues and people saying this is unbelievable this is i've never heard this before mm. this is fantastic and then you get to see the lord kind of answer uh, you know revive a dream Right and yeah, that's right. turn it into the Truth Project. And yeah. Did that come as a shock to you, or did that just come as a, a well, natural outgrowth of what was happening? To some extent, it wasn't a shock because it just didn't. Um, it took a long time, uh, but it was a shock from the standpoint. I don't know if you recall, Don Hodell had come in at that time. It was part of the transition for Dr. Dobson and. Don Hodel had taken over the, the duties, operational duties as the president. Well, he and his wife, Barb, sat in on one of the, those courses. Yeah. And Don was the one that then called me out into the hall. He said, Dell, we, we need to get this out. <laughs> and so that was, that was a shock uh, for me. Um, and then things rapidly progressed from there to, to the reality. We were going to actually do this and then began... You know, I think it was a two-year process to finally put the Truth Project together. Mm. And it has been a, a wild success. People continue to consume it and yes. hopefully, more importantly, put it into practice. Correct. Um, in the remaining time, Dr. Tackett, I'd love to hear you talk about, you've, you've talked at length about your concern as you look at culture that you've seen Romans 1 playing out. Yes. Specifically, the progression mm. of sin and I wonder if you could speak to that because sure. it explains a lot of what we're experiencing now as a country. Yes. Yeah, there's a progression in Romans uh, to summarize it. Uh, it's similar to what we see in other parts of the scripture, like Leviticus 18, where God says, look, if, you know, he, and he says, I'm going to do this to you because you need to repent. <laughs> so he's yeah. going to, and it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with the two before. Uh, and uh, it's going to hurt. But if you don't repent, then I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with a steel beam. And, and so there's these progressions that God says, trying to get people to repent. And we see the same thing in Romans 1. Uh, each of these three sections uh, are headed by, and God then gave them over to. And uh, it's all the result of a culture, I think, that has, as the scripture says, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the first one says that God gives them over to sexual impurity. That is an impurity between male and female. And if we look at America, for example, I don't think it's wrong to go back to the turn of the century from 1800 to 1900. We had a general um, understanding of right and wrong when it came to male and female. Yeah, we had brothels, but we knew it was wrong. But then all of a sudden we had Darwin and Dewey and Freud and, and, and things radically began to change in that foundational worldview. And, and, and things in our entertainment world began to move more and more towards a sexual impurity. And we ran through the, the 1900s up uh, down basically towards the end. And all of a sudden, uh, we would not repented and so forth. And the second one is that God then gives them, gives them over to um, uh, depraved um, passions. And those are 
those are passions, sexual passions that are outside of the male-female world, and, and it's described there in, in Romans 1. And then uh, it appears because if they do not repent, then finally gives them over to a depraved mind. And that's the third phase. And the Greek word there is a dokimon, and it means unqualified. And the unqualified mind, I believe, is a mind that can no longer uh, have the common sense and rationality that God made us. He made us to respond to a God who says, come, let us reason together. He made us that we could respond to the if-then-else on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. You know, if you follow the Lord, then these will be the blessings. If you don't, then these are the curses. And so God's very logical. He's given us a logical mind. But I think what we're finding in our culture today is that God has indeed given us over to a depraved mind. And that is why we see things. uh, Christians, for example, say, this is crazy. (laughs) We say, this is insane. Well, I think it's because people have been given over to a depraved mind. And so we can't logically uh, follow someone who says, you know, this is crazy. Yeah, that boy. And, and you have a great line here where you say, verbal opposition to the insanity of the narrative is exactly what needs to happen. Yeah, right. I mean, we have to pray. We have to. And I think the engagement project is perhaps part two of the truth project. It's, it is. If we want to see change if, in order to engage this. We need to get to know our neighbors. We need to talk with culture. That's exactly right. I, the, only, the only solution to someone of the depraved mind is, first of all, praying diligently that God is going to open their heart, open their mind, open their eyes, and in that trusted relationship, in that proper dialogue, to be able to explain to them what is true. The, you know, to stand in the public square and point a finger and say you're wrong is going to mean nothing to people in a culture that's been given over to a depraved mind. Mm. Well, Dr. Del Tackett, well, there's so much more to talk about. I haven't even gotten. I would love to talk to you about the crazy climatologists who are <laughs> suggesting that we're on the verge of uh, extinction because the temperature has yes. gone up during the summer. But we, we'll have to save that for another time. Okay. But thank you for joining today. And I'm Paul Batura. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura. Or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.